It is kingdom living in a fallen world. That is what the sermon first and foremost is intended to give. And you'll know from your own study of the sermon just how holistic is Jesus' sermon. He speaks about what it is to be a citizen, that you are salt and light in the world. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five of Jesus Begins His Ministry, a study in the fourth chapter of Matthew's Gospel from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text for today is verses 23 through 25. As we approach the closing portions of this series, Pastor Paul will focus more and more on Christ as King. With that said, Jesus demands his followers, Christians, to focus more and more on kingdom living, which is required of citizens in the kingdom of Christ. More than that, Pastor Paul teaches us that although many say they embrace the moral value of what Jesus taught, there is a danger in embracing kingdom ethics, but not the person of Christ. He's either worth embracing, following, and dying for, or let's not bother spreading his gospel around our neighborhood, city, and the world. Here's part five of Jesus Begins His Ministry. Our sermon text this morning is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter four, the very end of the chapter, verses 23 through to 25. Please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter four, verses 23 through 25. And he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we praise you for all that we have enjoyed already this morning. We are grateful for the gift of being able to worship you. We pray that our worship now would increase as we come to your word. Strengthen our hearts to praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. In two weeks from today, Lord willing, we will begin our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached, my guess is, will be there for some time. It is the first major teaching unit that Matthew records for us from the Lord Jesus. Matthew records five in total through his gospel. Matthew's gospel is very orderly in its presentation. There are five major teaching discourses from Jesus, and each teaching discourse is then followed up after by some works-based ministry of Christ. 
And so 5 through 7 is that first teaching block, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's followed in chapters 8 and 9 by some miracles that Jesus performs. Our text today is a summary of those chapters. As you look at verse 23 in particular, Matthew is synthesizing for us what we're about to read in chapters 5 through 9. We know that it is intended to be read as a summary statement that projects forward because of a near-identical verse at the end of the unit. And you might just turn over very briefly with me to see that verse, chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, at the end of this literary unit, verse 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. A near identical verse to chapter 423, the two are functioning as bookends to this first major unit portraying Jesus' ministry. And so Matthew here, chapter 4, is intending to show us something of what is to come. Now, that's not typically how you and I think of summaries. When I say that word, we tend to think of summations coming at the end. We summarize, we synthesize in a conclusion. We tend not to give all the information up front, but that's exactly what Matthew is doing here. So it's worth asking the question, why? Why is it that Matthew, in verse 23 of the fourth chapter, wants to tell us and signal to us what we're about to read? The answer, in short, as we've mentioned a number of times over the last few weeks, is that Matthew is not in the business of surprises. Matthew doesn't care to write a suspense-filled gospel. Quite the contrary. Matthew's design all the way through is to make this gospel plain, to make it accessible, to make sure that we can't miss the main point. The whole Bible works in this manner from Genesis to Revelation. The scriptures are profound, they are complex, there are issues in them that we can ponder our whole lives and never reach the bottom of. At the same time, the scriptures have been written in such a way that a child can access the pertinent truth. Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. And so he tells us up front at the very beginning of the first teaching discourse of this man's ministry, here's what you're about to read. It's a summary statement in order to make sure that we are best positioned to respond rightly. Matthew wants us to have no excuses, but to be positioned so that we can respond to Jesus's ministry correctly. So our role this morning is to unpack as best we can this summary statement. Indeed, to unpack verse 23, the summary statement, the nature of Jesus's ministry and to consider the response, verses 24 and 25. There'll be our two headings this morning, the nature of Jesus' ministry, verse 23, and the response to that ministry, 24 and 25. 
In both cases, as we look at both the nature and the response, in both cases, we are exhorted to a faith-centered obedience. In both cases, we are exhorted to a Christ-embracing obedience. It is not a new lesson that Matthew is commending us to here, but one that we have found many times already in the gospel, and that is that we are to embrace Christ first and foremost, and not something else. There are at least two dangers that arise when we see Jesus' teaching and his works laid out for us in the gospel. There are at least two dangers. One is that we would affirm what Jesus says and yet not embrace him. It is not hard to read the Sermon on the Mount and find good things in there that we like. The danger is that we would embrace his teaching and not embrace him. A second danger is that we would, in some manner, embrace Christ, and yet we wouldn't embrace him in the way that he demands to be embraced. We would see things we like about him, and we would adhere to his teaching and his call to discipleship to some degree, in part, not in whole, liking certain things about Jesus, but not willing to submit our whole lives to all that he is. And so in both cases, as we look at these few verses here, the exhortation is towards an embracing of Christ above all things, whatever are the implications. Beginning with the nature of his ministry, verse 23, Matthew tells us that Jesus is moving throughout Galilee, and he is doing three things, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Matthew gives us something of a threefold ministry, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. The teaching and the proclaiming I take to be near synonymous. There is not much value in trying to divide those and identify them as distinct aspects of Jesus' ministry. Rather, I understand that the teaching pertains to his time in the synagogues, opening up the Old Testament scriptures with the Jewish people, explaining to them and reasoning with them things of the kingdom. The proclaiming, perhaps, is more exhortatory. He's, he's out, he's calling people to repentance, and yet the content remains the same, namely the kingdom of God and the fact that he is the Messiah. So the, the substance, the essence of the teaching and the proclaiming would have been the same. So we can understand those two things as near synonymous, essentially the same part of his ministry, and then separate from that, Matthew identifies his healing ministry. So in summary form, Matthew says Jesus' ministry was one of words and of works. Jesus came speaking many words and doing many works. I want to think about the healing ministry in our second point today, so I don't intend to deal with it right now. But let's just ponder for a moment a little bit more that teaching ministry of Christ and consider what it would have looked like. Well, as I said, this summary statement introduces the Sermon on the Mount, the first of five teaching discourses in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 
more than any other gospel writer, is intent on recording lengthy instruction from Christ. He gives us the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples as he sent them out. He gives us instructions concerning the church. He gives us the Olivet Discourse as he projects forward and says what will come to pass. And then the last teaching discourse in Matthew's gospel is a series of parables. Not in that order necessarily, but they are the five blocks of teaching. As we think about the most immediate one, the one that we'll begin studying two Sundays from now, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that first and foremost is addressed to his disciples. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, we see when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. As his disciples came to him, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. The sermon is first and foremost a sermon directed towards Jesus' disciples. Those who had received, as we thought about last week, the effectual call. They were now kingdom citizens. And so, if I can summarize the sermon, I would advocate that you think of it as a kingdom ethic. What's the Sermon on the Mount all about? Jesus is giving to his disciples a kingdom ethic. In light of the fact that you now belong to this kingdom, you have to think through how to live in response. Now, that kingdom ethic is given in light of the reality that we are not yet there. It is still a fallen world with sin abounding all around us. And so as one author summarized and synthesized the sermon, it is kingdom living in a fallen world. That is what the sermon first and foremost is intended to give. And you'll know from your own study of the sermon just how holistic is Jesus' sermon. He speaks about what it is to be a citizen, that you are salt and light in the world. He talks about the fact that he came to fulfill the law and what that then means for their obedience to him. He speaks to the issue of anger in the heart, to lust in the heart, to the issue of divorce, of your words and oaths spoken, of retaliation against those who have wronged you, of the imperative to love your enemies. He speaks about your giving. He speaks about your prayer life. He speaks about the necessity of fasting, of laying up treasures in heaven, of not being anxious, of not judging others, of prayer to the heavenly father, of the golden rule. It is an all-encompassing sermon. As we will find out over the next few months, Jesus encompasses all of life in this world in light of the fact that you now belong to his kingdom. If that was the sum total of Jesus' ministry, it would be a deadly thing to not hear the call to repentance. If I was to say to you this morning, the sum total of Jesus' ministry is giving to you an ethic, that is arguably the most deadly sermon you will ever hear. If all we did was to parachute into Matthew's gospel at chapter 5, And to say, this is how you ought to live. The sermon only ever works out in your heart condemnation before a holy God. The reason I say that is precisely the reason that we find the sermon given in chapter 5 of the gospel and not chapter 1. 
There is a reason why Matthew did not open his gospel with Jesus' teaching on the mount to his disciples. Because if all you ever do is receive an ethic from Christ, instruction in terms of how you ought to live, you stand condemned. Your desire to obey the ethic, your striving to adhere to his words, only ever brings condemnation before God. He gives the sermon in chapter 5. There is a context. Context is key. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have to keep in view all that has been said from chapters 1 through 4, not least the very first thing Jesus preached, which is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As you understand Jesus to be giving an ethic to his disciples, we must ever try to keep before us that this is not the means by which they are to earn God's favor. He does not give these instructions as a means by which they would render themselves accepted before a heavenly, holy father. Rather, this sermon comes in its proper place after the disciples had turned away from their sin and embraced Christ as their Savior. Context is important. The sum total of Jesus' ministry is not merely his instruction of how to live now. I believe Matthew intends for us to understand that even in the summary statement he gives us at verse 23. Look again how Matthew describes Jesus' ministry, teaching, he says, in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now that is a unique term to Matthew. Every single gospel author has his own points of theological emphasis. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John agree entirely concerning the nature of the Lord Jesus. They would have no disagreements amongst themselves as to who this man is, what he came to accomplish, what our response should be. They are theologically united. At the same time, every gospel author, carried along by the Holy Spirit, places his own point of emphasis on Jesus' ministry. So Mark, by way of example, is particularly burdened to highlight to us the suffering servant nature of Christ's earthly ministry. When you read through Mark's gospel, there are lots of allusions back to Isaiah. He wants to emphasize that this man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark's emphasis. Luke's emphasis is subtly different. He desires to show us the humanity of Christ, particularly that he comes as a second Adam. So Luke's emphasis is very universal, showing Jesus' emphasis to the nations as he stands as the head of a new creation. Jesus comes as the second Adam, Luke teaches us. And John's emphasis, again, is wonderfully different. John is concerned to show us that Jesus is indeed God. Now, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not disagree with that. They were on board with the deity of Christ. But John makes a particular accent in his gospel. He shows us that this man, in fact, is God in the flesh. Matthew's emphasis, as I trust you know by now, 
is that Jesus is the king. Mark shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant, Matthew says, and he is at the same time the wonderful, glorious, anticipated Messiah. He is the king. And so as we get to Matthew's description of Jesus' teaching ministry, we find a term that is found nowhere else in the Gospels. Not found in Mark or Luke or John, Matthew alone says Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that is so helpful for us to keep all of his teaching in view. What does it mean that he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? It means, at least in part, that this man, this man Christ Jesus, comes with authority. He presents himself as the king to be obeyed, which means it is our burden to get all of our lives under all of his words. We strive to bring all that we are under all that he is. And that would include verse 17 of chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't get to ignore the call on our lives to turn away from our sin to disassociate ourselves from our sin and to cast ourselves upon Christ. And it is so important to labor this point because we're so prone to do otherwise. In our sinful flesh, we are so prone to avoid submission to Jesus, repentance from sin, accepting in all humility that we have nowhere to go but fleeing to Christ. The inclinations of the flesh will compel us to do anything but cast ourselves upon Christ. Which is why when you speak to somebody who is not in Christ and you ask them the question, what do you make of the Lord Jesus? So often the answer is, I believe he was a good teacher. That tells you as much about their heart as it does about their perception of Christ. The heart does not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. The heart sees it. The heart knows it. It is bound up in us to recognize who Jesus is. And yet in our flesh, we do not want to embrace that fact. And thus, a seemingly acceptable answer is to credit him with something, not the Lordship. I'll credit him with being a good teacher. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. How often have you shared the gospel only to have someone respond, Jesus was a great teacher, or Jesus showed people how to love each other? Both statements are true, of course, but something's missing. If that's all there is to commend Jesus, and he in fact is not the Son of God and Savior of the world, he was among the greatest con men who ever lived. Soon, Christ, in Matthew's narrative, would be separating himself from the crowds and dealing only with his disciples, shunning the crowds who mostly wanted things, to giving himself to his 12 men and preparing them for his soon death. Today is no different from what occurred in Jesus' day Many have responded to Jesus' general call, wanting to do good and turn their lives around. But let's agree on this. Jesus is the Son of God, prophesied about in the Old Testament as the coming Messiah to bring eventual peace and joy to a renewed world. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. 
Press broadcast, and there you'll find more of Pastor Sermons free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this solid Bible teaching is a benefit to your walk with Jesus, would you consider making a financial gift to this outreach ministry? You'll become a part of what God is doing to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any amount, go to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, and select Donate. Thank you for your consideration. Tomorrow, part six, the conclusion in our series, Jesus Begins His Ministry from Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.